I think that uh, the people should uh, take control of the situation and uh, institute uh, new institutions uh, in order for us to receive justice. All that pressure, but it can't defeat you. They don't know the like we do. Wow. The people that say Black Lives Matter, it made me proud, happy. It made me feel like I was, made me feel like I was a person. They don't know the blood like we do. Police raids, shootouts, the wars. I hate you. They don't know the blood like we do. Ten toes down, nigga, we got this. Yeah. Nah. We are bound to transform society and uh, erect a system where uh, people will receive justice. Hey everybody, welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. We're gonna get straight to it today. We're gonna be joined by uh, a friend of mine and a special guest. You all know him, y'all love him. Uh, you know him from Wildin' Out. You know him, of course, the founder and creator of Hollywood Unlocked, uh, frequent guest on Wendy Williams, Brother Jason Lee. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, now one of the things folks may not know about you though, Jason, that I love about your background is, is in addition to your fantastic and successful entertainment career and entrepreneurship, you actually had a whole career as a leader with unions and, and labor organizing, which I found fascinating. And it's why I reached out to you specifically to have this conversation as we break down uh, what the culture needs to know and understand about police unions. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I, um, it's, I, I was, in, I was uh, interested in exploring where this was going to go in terms of all the actions that are happening in the streets and the conversation around police accountability, because I don't think people think about the business of unions and what their job is. Um, and although it's complicated, because I did it for 10 years, right? I represented yep. health workers. So just even with the guy just killed in Atlanta and the police officer fired in less than 24 hours, he has due process rights. They're going to, you know, in a rush to hold him accountable to, I think, uh, uh, appease the public, you're, they may potentially violate his rights, which could overturn uh, his termination. So it's just like there's process. And I think while unions are a good thing, I think um, sometimes they can be a part of the problem. I am like you, not against unions in, in, in their most basic form. Unions came about because workers in this country deserve to have uh, unification. They deserve to have collective bargaining rights. They deserve to have advocacy of the collective. My problem is this, though, Jason. A lot of unions, including police unions in modern day society, have turned into organizations that protect not only mediocrity, but people that are the most problematic of their industry. We've got videotapes. We're seeing some of them being arrested, but we're not seeing hardly any of them being convicted. And the issue that I've identified as an attorney who's practiced law and, and tried to, to get convictions in these cases, we're not seeing it, Jason, because the statute says that all the officer has to do is articulate a reasonable fear. And that could be anything. Anything could be deemed uh, causing their fear. So, Jason, can you just tell the people how unions gain political power, how they utilize that political power, and how they flex that political power 
to stop legislative changes in their tracks because you know how it goes. Yeah. So think about it. So I used to work with SEIU, United Healthcare Workers West here in California, representing all of the Kaiser Permanente workers. So I work primarily in healthcare, and all of the lobbying and legislation that we pushed was around. Um, you know, safer patient standards for uh, patients in the in the in the hospital, so that way healthcare workers would um, you know have more staff to support themselves, right? To support the work that they did. But um, you have to think about it. Our goal just at SCIU was 30% of our membership be signed up to our committee on political education fund. So COPE was the fund that the union created to be able to raise money, voluntary donations from members for political purposes. So if 30% of 150,000 people were paying $20 a month to this fund, that's millions and millions of dollars that's used to lobby people, not only lobby, but also help to run uh, campaigns. The politics were just so immense. And the national union, the international union wanted to change the direction of the local membership. And we started to disagree with that. And when the members voted to go in a different direction, they came and took over the union and basically mm-hmm. gave us all 24 hours to decide if we wanted to stay there or lie to the members or leave. I decided mm. to my career. And that's what I put in the book. But I will tell you to your question about accountability, right? I get that police officers have a difficult job, but I feel like the burden of responsibility for proving that you your life was in jeopardy should be the same as me walking down the street, right? Right. If I can't just pull out a gun and shoot somebody because I feel like my life is in jeopardy, then I, absolutely a police officer shouldn't be able to and just articulate in a way that isn't backed by facts. When we were formed, police accountability in this country. And we changed that standard from reasonable fear, which means absolutely nothing, to one of necessity and make the officer prove that killing these young men and women was necessary in order for their defense. Now you've got a community and a whole society, Jason, that can have just a little bit of trust that when their loved one is taken from them unnecessarily, they might get some justice. But as it is now, There is zero trust around that. The cynicism is well-earned. We're not seeing hardly any convictions when it comes to these law enforcement officers taking our children, our brothers, our fathers, our mothers, and our family members away. So you know what you get? You get some vigilante justice. You have officers like what happened in Dallas, Texas back in 2016. What, uh, I think it was five officers murdered, killed, and nine other ones brutally injured. Then you had, uh, right a week later, uh, in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, right down the street from where I was born, you had another three officers killed and, and, and I think five others seriously wounded. Not saying that's right, but that is a response, Jason, to a community that cannot trust the justice system as it stands. Yeah. So my argument goes like this. Change the accountability laws. Unions, get out of the way. Stop with this blind faith, as you point out, Jason, of of protection at all costs, because the cost is actually y'all. You're cutting off your nose to spite your face when you when you push back so aggressively. They're spending millions of dollars, Jason, to keep reform from happening. They're filing lawsuits. They're doing all kind of shit. You know, you know, you know, the tools. Yeah, but let me say this. I, I, I don't believe that the unions are the only reason or the only problem. Right. Let, let's no, like, like this no. is a complicated conversation. But they're one. I'm going to use Keisha Lance Bottoms as an example, right? I love mm-hmm. Keisha Lance Bottoms. I love all of what she appears to represent online. I love all the celebrities that stand behind her in Atlanta. I love that she's a black woman. I love that they were even talking about her becoming the vice president of the country. She's you, in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, she needs to be taken out, and I'm going to tell you why. 
I don't follow. Okay. I'm not a company man that goes along with whatever the culture says. This sweater, the culture needs me is because we need people who don't just go along with what everybody says. Keisha Lance Bottoms was one of the first people to stand at a press conference in Atlanta and denounce protests in Atlanta. Oh, she did. She did. Denounce, denounce all of the explosion of, uh, of, of rage that black people have felt across this country for years. And she stood there with uh, Big Mike, I think it's Big Mike, and T.I. Killer Mike. Killer Mike. Killer Mike. And, mm-hmm. and she talked about how this don't happen in Atlanta. Black officers in Atlanta, you got a black, Atlanta's black. And then what happened? God said, you're not going to undermine the movement of my people. And then less than a couple of days later, you had two college students brutally ripped out of their cars uh, on television. Right. And then now you have an unarmed black man murdered by two white police officers in a Wendy's parking lot. Now your city's on fire. And now you have to be humble to come and talk about the problem that permeates. She stood in that first on She stood in that first uh um, she stood in that first press conference. press conference and she pointed at the chief and said how dedicated this woman was and this woman. But guess what? Whether it's the top or the bottom, they have to reform the entire police system in our country. And I don't know that unions are all the problem, but I do believe that right now, because what's happening, it is becoming an us and them conversation and the defunding the police, which I think is a great movement is now going to make them lock in harder with their messaging of us all being on the same page when they know they have bad apples in the bunch. Well, I don't think anything more needs to be said. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Hollywood Unlocks founder, uh, visionary, you know him for while and out, you're doing your thing there. I couldn't be more proud of you. You're owning your product. That's a whole nother conversation. You're owning your content and you're setting a model for people like me uh, to, to be a part of that leadership. Jason Lee, we'll talk soon, brother. Thank you. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Here are today's headlines. Originally reported as a suicide, the death of 24-year-old Robert Fuller, a young man found hanging from a tree in Palmdale, California, is now being dealt with as a homicide. There have been three other hangings of Black people across this country. I have to refer back to James Baldwin when I hear about our brothers and sisters being found hung from trees. Um, James Baldwin talks about when uh, a a black man or woman rises up to assert themselves, to assert fair treatment and equality, the brute force of white America deals with them so violently as to make an example out of them. So no other Negro has the audacity to do the same. Y'all, that's where my mind goes when I see in 2020, Young black men and women being found uh, hanging from trees, as Billie Holiday calls strange fruit. Uh, It's horrifying. It's terrifying. And I think it tells us exactly how far folks in this country will go to keep us in our place. Um, So as as the homicide investigation of Brother Fuller continues, uh, we will stay on it and we will cover it uh, until we understand exactly how and why this is happening in our country. President Trump signed an executive order addressing police reform. Specifically, Trump's executive order will address recruitment and, quote, correspondent practices. I have to tell y'all, while on its face, this might look good to some, be extremely careful here. Uh, Because in our business of survival and well-being as Black folks in this country, we cannot afford to have anybody 
that talks out of both sides of their mouth. Because this is the same man that talked about people being of, 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 of good sides on both sides of chanting, they shall not replace us. See, we can't forget that part. Uh, we can't forget the part where he talks about uh, at his rallies, uh, any uprising of, of folks that look like us. Um, he said back in his day, those folks were, were beat down and carried out. So just remember the messenger here. That's all I'm saying, folks. The killing of Richard Brooks in the parking lot of a Wendy's in Atlanta, Georgia, has amplified our nation and our community's outrage. The Brooks family is demanding justice and murder charges be brought in this case, uh, as well they should. We already know that the autopsy of this young man proves that it was indeed a homicide and that he was shot in the back by law enforcement. Uh, so only murder charges would be appropriate here. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's too much. It's the same. Uh, the outrage is absolutely proportionate. Uh, we know that that Wendy's ended up burning down uh, really after, after this brother's killing. And when will it stop? Uh, I am not sure, but what I do know until it stops, until our young men and women stop being gunned down in the back by law enforcement, our outrage and our work will continue. Just days after the Trump administration removed anti-discrimination protection for the LGBTQ community as it relates to health care, the United States Supreme Court ruled that job discrimination for the LGBTQ community would violate civil rights laws. As I say to this, thank God that we have three separate independent branches of government. Thank God for the United States Supreme Court being able to act independent of this administration. A Louisville City Council is definitely saying Breonna Taylor's name as they voted to ban no-knock warrants. That's exactly the type of warrant that was used to kill Breonna Taylor. And now those no-knock warrants will be banned under Breonna's law. Just one week after she went missing, a 19-year-old Black Lives Matter activist Alawatoyan Salu was found dead. And the Tallahassee police have arrested 49-year-old suspect Aaron Glee. In some lighter news, the NBA is set to return on July 31st. But some players, like Kyrie Irving, reportedly do not support the league's decision. I gotta say, I actually, as much as y'all know I love my sports, I love my NBA basketball, but... I'm with Kyrie and a lot of other players on this because I do believe, sad as it is, that many folks in our country and hell, many of us might find ourselves distracted if we have the opportunity to engage and look away from the very real problems that are, are facing us as a community and as a nation right now. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell speaking with ESPN's Mike Greenberg on a special, The Return to Sports, said that he welcomes and encourages teams to sign Colin Kaepernick. Well, I appreciate Goodell finally saying Colin Kaepernick's name because we know that he did not invoke Colin Kaepernick specifically when he gave his so-called apology around the league not listening to calls of protest and of action as it relates to social justice for black people in this country. All right, y'all, we're gonna take another quick break. But when we get back, 
Riza Islam and Philip V. McHarris are going to join us to discuss the history of policing. Fight the power! We don't condone Minneapolis. We roundly reject what he did as disgusting. Disgusting. Family, Brother Reza Islam here. Assalamu alaikum. Simply means peace be unto you. We are here for just this information, man, that we need to get out to the people regarding policing of America or what we know is uh, police terrorism or domestic terrorism in many different forms. I'm here with our brother who is a activist who is currently working on his PhD at Yale. His name is Philip McHarris. You, you've been dealing with this for a long time. I've been dealing with this for a long time. And uh, though we made some progress, it seems every time we take two steps forward, it's about five to seven steps back for some reason. Yeah, I mean, this moment is, is accumulation of decades and centuries, really, of police violence and terror disproportionately against Black people, Black communities. Um, and, you know, this happens every so often where the pressure builds and something pops. We we talked about George Floyd, but it's also around Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and all of the black people that are murdered by the police. Um, but it's also about all of the people who are harassed and brutalized um, and arrested for no reason every single day. And, you know, all of that builds. And it's also around the, you know, the structural and economic inequality that has existed in this country. Um, and, you know, we live in a country that's this basically has created resource-rich suburbs and, you know, resource-deprived ghettos and then sent police to then further inflame the community by trying to police out of the social ills that the United States has, has created. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a problem-reaction-solution type of model 
we know that the origin of the policing system here in America originated with the tracking and tracing of our ancestors, uh, specifically out of Carolina, dealing with the Carolina Slave Patrol. And from then on, the whole agenda all the way up until the black codes or slave codes was to monitor and track and to make sure that black people do not conjugate or congregate or come together, et cetera. You know, we can't even stand on the corner. We can't talk to each other when it's three or more, five or more. Another piece of this is that in urban cities, you know, especially in the 1800s, what inevitably happened was, was that business owners looking to protect their, their shipments and their property and their businesses basically created the context that, you know, where they convinced the public that it was in the collective good in order to have publicly funded police. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's this tie that I think is, is really important around capitalism and, you know, policing. People question literally because they don't know, have we successfully policed ourselves in the past? Have we had groups and organizations set up to police our communities? And we did. We've had the beacons of defense. We've had the Hutu fighters. We've had the African commandos. We've had, of course, the Black Panthers, Nation of Islam, FOI. We are still here and we can train each other. We can do this. It's not it's not a hard thing. We just have to be organized, you know, and, and do it. You know, and what do you think about that, brother, as far as, you know, your knowledge on community policing? Yeah. So, I mean, I think because probably my relationship to police that like my I think that like also part of the imagining is shifting away from the perspective of like just po- like policing Mm-hmm. as a concept and as a framework that we're understanding safety, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Because we can police, anyone can be, and this is sort of like in recent decades, the push between, oh, we need more diverse and black officers. We need more community policing. Mm-hmm. But anybody can engage in a system that is fundamentally around control and domination. In 1960, the United States spent $2 billion on policing. In 1980, it was $14.6 billion. 2000, it was 67 billion, and in 2018, it was 137 billion dollars. And for all of that money, the data show that there is no correlation with what's referred to as crime, including what's described as violent crime. There's no correlation. It's not that police are decreasing crime, it, it, it just doesn't exist. So, for 135 billion dollars, the only thing to show for it is an increased capacity for violence and harm. If they just took, you know, from what you were saying, uh, a tenth of that budget and just put it towards community restoration programs, housing, and food programs, then the community would change almost within a week or two if they just put it directly toward it and dispersed it evenly. Things would, you know, improve almost overnight. Does it seem like it is now resurrecting in its origin of how it used to be practiced? They got the dogs out, beating you for no reason, choking you. It's just because of cameras, we're just seeing it all consolidated and aggregated. In the 1960s, the rebellions that sweeped the nation, research shows that at least half of those were, were prompted directly by police violence. Mm-hmm. What has happened since 1960 onward, beginning with the, the Law Enforcement Assistance Act, which Lyndon B. Johnson passed, which created the first federal mechanism of federal dollars to local law enforcement, which then cities you know, and states followed suit at the expense of things like education and hospitals and healthcare mm-hmm. um, and housing. And so now what we're seeing is, is what, what we've created, you know, this massive policing apparatus that, that, is, that is unreformable, but has so much power. And now they have this militaristic 
you know, forces because of programs like the 1033 program and because of, you know, the 1208 program and other federal pathways, as well as them just going and buying the, the toys that they want at places like the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the conferences, you know, they basically have companies come in and say, you know, what do you want? Like, you, we got this, we got this, you need new, right. new clear gas, you need new flashback. And basically now what we're seeing is, is like, police are basically reacting and rioting to maintain their power and control mm-hmm. to brutalize black people and other marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, see, that's, and, and that's which goes straight into the prison industrial complex and the overall hamster wheel you know, right. circumstance they have to continue to oppress, suppress, because their money depends upon how many criminals they can create and maintain. The next question that I have for you is, are we, you know, what are some steps from your expertise and your knowledge, what are some steps to rewrite history? Because as of right now, it looks to me, you know, that it looks as, it looks to me as if we're rewriting history now. Yeah, not for sure. And I think like, you know, Ferguson after Michael Brown was murdered, there was an emergence of a social movement. And that now for the past for the past five years or so, people have been engaging in rigorous dialogue, study, thinking about these these issues looking at folks like Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and critical resistance, we caught up. Historically, it was always like, all right, we're going to implement community policing, we're going to do procedural justice, this is what we're going to do. And it caught up. And so now what we're seeing is that people are caught up and and now see like, yo, we have to actually reimagine this entire system. And this starts by, you know, one avenue is defunding, but it's also about decriminalization because criminalization is what brings police into contact with communities anyway. My brother Philip, I appreciate you for all of that information and everything that you gave to the people. Uh, my name is Brother Reza Islam, family again. We have the ability to police ourselves or to bring our communities into a safer environment and a more safe type of situation. As they become defunded, we have to organize, strategize, and use the money and economics and create our own policies that help us from city to city, state to state, and of course, country to country. So again, my name is Brother Reza Islam. I'm here with my brother, Philip McHarris. We're gonna continue to spread the word and bring more and more solutions until we truly realize freedom, justice, and equality. I'm thrilled to invite two very special guests to join me in a conversation that we are having as a culture, and that is about community policing. Uh, first up, you know him. He's Revolt fam. He uh, is the legendary DJ Envy from The Breakfast Club. Brother Envy, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it so much. Absolutely. Uh, and rounding out the conversation is a woman I've worked with, uh, I've had the pleasure of working with for, for many years now. And she is the national chairwoman of the National Black Police Association, Sonia Cruitt. Sonia, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You both have fathers who served as law enforcement officers um, and had careers in that space. So to get us started, uh, y'all both know, it's, it's, it's a lot of polarizing um, and very authentic raw feelings when it comes to the black community and our relationship with the police. Envy, I wanna start with you. Um, you. You grew up seeing your father uh, in law enforcement for, for many, many years, but obviously you, you currently occupy a role uh, that is iconic in the culture. So you, you've seen this from a, a, a mass cultural lens as well, but also from a deeply personal one. So just reflect, brother, on what, what it looks like to you when you think about the culture and the police. Um, growing up, uh, my dad, of course, was a police officer. He, uh, after Vietnam War, when he got back home, there were no jobs. 
So the only job that he could take in was being a police officer. So him being a police officer and me growing up as a kid in Queens, we really, it, it didn't mean anything to me different. You know, he was just my dad that was a cop and people know him as a cop on the block. You know what I mean? Kept our block safe. My dad was cool. My dad was the dad that, you know, he was the one that was at baseball, little league, teaching the kids. He was the one at basketball practice. We had the only hoop on our block that all the kids played. That was my dad. But since my dad was a cop, I was always the ass, meaning if I got pulled over for doing nothing, I was the one that questioned the cops. I was the one that yelled and screamed at the cops because I was like, I really did nothing. And I knew I always had that backup. I'll call my dad. You felt protected. I felt protected. And I remember one time I got pulled over and uh, my dad was on speakerphone. This is before there was Bluetooth, so it was a speakerphone. <laughs> right. And, right. and uh, a lady made a left in front of me. She was a white lady. The cop let her go. See me, pull me over. And I was mad. So I started cursing out the cops. He put license and registration. I'm asking, what, what, what did I do? License and registration. What did I do? So we're going back and forth. And I'm yelling. He's yelling. We're going back. And I'm being disrespectful. And I could just remember my dad yelling, give him your effing license. Give him your effing license. And he's screaming through the phone, yelling at me. Give him your effing license. Rashawn, give him your effing license. And I gave him the license. And of course, nothing was wrong. He gave me the ticket. He gave, let me go. And my dad was like, look, let me explain something to you. You cannot beat the police in the street. Your main goal is to get home. He says, once you get home, then we could set up a plan on how we're going to win if we have to go to court. He says, but if you don't make it home, there is no win. you got to make it home. For us, for our community, the number one thing to do is to make it home. It's a movement going on across the country now that's saying uh, we've tried police, uh, community policing. We've tried to implement theories, academic theories that say, well, when police officers, black police officers or other police officers that are more familiar with the community and the culture, um, that that should decrease the number of unjustifiable deaths or murders or assaults. That's the thinking. But the data doesn't necessarily play out that way in some studies. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you this, Envy, are we too far gone? in your opinion, for community policing? Is that, is that a possible savior point at this point? Or are some people right in just saying maybe it's time to just dismantle police altogether? What's your take? Um, I think we might be too far gone when it comes to certain things. But I will say, as a kid growing up in Queens, um, I didn't know the police officers in my community. Mm. I, I honestly didn't. But I didn't need to because my dad was a cop and lived in the community and that was my dad's block. So even though the cops came, if there was a problem, my dad handled the problem. Like I, I remember a, a kid that uh, he had Down syndrome and he lived on the block. And I don't want to say he would break out, but every once in a while he would break out the crib and <laughs> run up the, down the block. And we all know who he was because he was the kid with the Down syndrome. And, and no disrespect, we called him E because that's, that, that's the only letter he would say E. And when he came out the house, I could just imagine nowadays, let's say somebody called the police on him and now you got this kid that's big running, running towards you. Right. The cops would be aggressive, right? Because they would be scared. They wouldn't know this kid. They wouldn't know the community. But now my dad, who is a police officer, who knows the community, who knows this kid, who knows the kid's mom, who knows the kid's pop, it's a different situation. It's no, 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 no. He, he's, he's okay. Let me talk to him or let me get his mom. And the situation is now de-escalating. So we need more people from the community to be police officers and to stay in that community because those are the people I respect. 
a lot of law enforcement, black, white, and other, come from military backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is you are taking individuals who have a warlike mentality, right? They are literally of the mindset of combat, and then you're dropping them into communities. Mm -hmm. I want to start with you, Sonia. What do we think the, the psychological devastation and then the impact can be, not always, but certainly we can see it playing out, that you are taking folks and asking them to police communities but a lot of them, I don't think it made the transition to accept, okay, this is not necessarily a war zone because they're treating it like it's a war zone. So that would be to presuppose that a majority of police officers come from military. So I'll, although I would agree with you to some extent, um, I would say that the issue is more that when you become the police, it is the way that you are trained. Can the trust be rebuilt or do we need to tear it all down and start over? What's your take? Um, I think the trust can be rebuilt if more police officers stand up and say, hey, this was wrong. And not just stand up in the public and then write a letter later on and saying, hey, I just said that because I was in the public. <laughs> Real police officers have to stand up and be like, yo, that was wrong. What that what they did to George Floyd and what they did to these other people is effing wrong. And I stand with you guys. That's credibility. Sonia, what say you? Last word. Hey, I agree with him completely. Um, but I, I, I'm... I'm Skeptical about whether uh, we can heal in this space. I, I kind of feel like we might need to kind of start over. You know, when they're talking about disbanding police police departments, I don't think they're talking about getting rid of the police, period. But we're going to have to rethink how we do policing. And that's, that should be driven by the public because that's who we work for. It should not be driven by the police, although we should have an integral part in the conversation and the reforms. So I, I just think that we're going to have to reimagine what our police departments are going to look like. And when we hire, we need to be specific about what we will and will not tolerate and what the expectations are. Sonia, I mean, you're a valuable, valuable, valuable resource for our sister. Envy, uh, you know, I really appreciate what you're doing uh, on the platform daily at the Breakfast Club and the, and the perspective you gave us today here on uh, Revolt Black News. Uh, so important. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. I am disgusted with the things that happened in Minneapolis. Pure, point blank. Things could have went way different. At the end of the day, let's talk facts. Guy is on the ground. He's laying on his stomach. He has handcuffs on. It's four of y'all, one of him. Four of y'all, one of him. Who has control of this situation? As an officer, you are a first responder, right? So if in the midst of you trying to gain compliance, someone is hurt, you have to render aid. So somebody's saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. You don't think to yourself and say, oh my gosh, this guy can't breathe. He might die. Let me render aid, right? Another point, officers, other officers, if you're going to be an officer that's going to stand there and not help and not help when things go wrong, Come on, like you don't see that? That's the reason I got behind this badge, right? Because I want them officers that's afraid to step up, I want to be the one to step up. If I see wrong happening, wrong is not happening in my presence, right? I'm going to check it, and that's period. I was angry, I wanted to protest. I've done my own silent protest. But I think the community needs to hear it from us. Not only the chief, the deputy chiefs, they need to hear it from us, the line officers, that we agree with what they saw. We agree it was murder, murder, and we agree that something needs to be done. If you haven't seen it, and I'm sure most people have now, it's disgusting. And the officer that stood by and just watched and let it happen, you're just as guilty. Because you also have an obligation to protect that individual that you're arresting. 
It's time that we take these bad officers and speak out against them and start holding them accountable and hold them to the same laws that we we expect citizens to abide by. They're not above it, and it's time that good officers start speaking out and stopping it. If you as a police officer can watch that video and not think something's wrong, you are part of this problem. You are part of the problem that we face every single day trying to weed out the bad apples because you don't admit when somebody did something wrong simply because you're blinded by the police officer family. George Floyd's family, I'm sorry, this was not okay. And I will do everything in my power to ensure that justice is served. I'm sorry. I didn't want to watch it initially, but I finally did. And what I saw was uh, inhumane, uh, what that man did. Uh, it was criminal, what that man did. And for them to arrest him was the right thing to do. Officers like this tarnish the badge. They tarnish the oath. We have to go out here and work harder to repair those relationships with our communities across the entire U.S. Because it doesn't just affect one community, it affects all of them. I hope y'all are charged accordingly. To the Floyd family, I am sorry for your loss. And to my Blue family, we can't let this happen anymore. I would like to be out here helping, but unfortunately I have a job. We know that it's infiltrators within with a different agenda. Right. One of the guys couldn't even tell me who the guy I was protesting for. He didn't even know who George Floyd was. Those people here to steal Gucci, they're here to steal product to put money in their pocket yeah. and sell stuff. This is nothing. We want all equality for everybody. Everybody here has families, they have kids. I worry about my kids just as much as y'all do. I have been a black female in America far longer than I've been an officer. All we're asking for is equality, everybody to be treated fair. I sincerely hope and pray that one day, like Donnie Hathaway, one day we'll all be free and we'll all be treated the same. To the Floyd family, please know that you're in my sincerest prayers. All right, welcome back to Revolt Black News. So we're gonna start a brand new segment where every episode we are gonna spotlight, highlight, and amplify a black business owner. Yes, here at Revolt Black News, we honor black entrepreneurs. And we're gonna start it with a dear friend of mine, Mr. Brian Taylor. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you just giving me the opportunity to speak about what I do and what I love. And of course, for always supporting Harlem Doggy Day Spa with Carrie and just always showing love on social media. So I really appreciate you. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, Brian, my mom was, was a, a black business boss. And so I always have appreciated uh, the spirit, the tenacity. It's not easy starting a business, particularly as a black man in this country. Uh, it's a lot of obstacles, but you keep going. And what I love about your story, Brian, is you actually had a very successful and stable career in finance. And then you you made you bust a move and you made this transition and you've made it work. So tell us about uh, your move from finance to now uh, owning your own uh, dog care facility. Honestly, it was a mis it was almost an accident. Um, I was actually trying to invest in a black owned um, business person. And unfortunately, you know, we were in business for two years and it didn't work because we had two different viewpoints. Um, so if I had to make a decision. Am I just going to let this business just you know, go away or am I going to step up and do what it takes? 
So what I did, I went to a dog grooming school. I became a dog groomer and I fell in love with the hands-on aspect of the business. Instead of being behind the desk, counting the money and doing all the finance and the payroll, I got my hands dirty and I switched over from the finance world to the puppy world because I realized at that moment that what I'm doing is fulfilling, makes me happy and I enjoy doing it. And I love supporting people who need our services. And, you know, 10 years later, we're here. We're growing. We're doing amazing things for the community. And I'm just in a good place because I love what I do. I'm going to tell you who else loves what you do. Um, my little sweet girl, Carrie. Help, you're going to come join us. Carrie, come here, lazy girl. Come, come be with mama. This don't make no sense. I can't believe she's so... <laughs> she's, she's normally very obedient. Why are you showing <laughs> out? She's showing out for company. <laughs> oh, stop. Oh, please. <laughs> Sweet, baby girl. <laughs> she misses so Brian. Look, she it's your dog father. Why. It's the what's dog up, father. Gary? Hi, say, Gary. Say, hey, Brian. Hey, what's up, baby girl? I know you have a brilliant fundraising campaign going on right now to bring these wonderful services to even more pups and pup owners. And it features black groomers like yourself. So tell us about it. Yeah, so basically I've always wanted to travel from New York to L.A. in my mobile van and just kind of help people on my way to L.A. So this is a really good time to do that. So what I did is that I told my uh, black groomer friends on my Facebook group, like, hey, listen, I'm planning to go to L.A. I'm going to jump in my mobile van. If you guys are interested in just coming along, let me know. And out of nowhere, we had like 30 or 40 people say, hey, Brian, we want to come. We want to give back into the community that's always been supportive and loving to us. So that's yeah. how this whole pup pandemic tour started. And now it's just picked up steam. We have more groomers that's coming along and they just want to help. You know, we're that's bringing dope, right? in New York, D.C., Atlanta. We're going to Dallas. We're going to L.A. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be amazing. That's dope. So tell the people, tell the culture. This is your opportunity to pitch to the culture. What do you need us to do? Where do we donate? How do we support this movement? Yeah, definitely. So we need your support. Uh, we need to raise $83,000 for this to happen. The goal is to have about 50 groomers to impact about 500 or more dogs in our cities. So every city, about 200 dogs apiece. So we need your support. So the best way to, to help us out is go to our GoFundMe page and look for a puppy pandemic tour and donate puppy and pandemic share. tour yes donate puppy and share pandemic puppy tour. pandemic yeah. tour yeah you can look it up pup pandemic tour donate and share you can go to our instagram page at holland doggy day spot the link is in our bio you can go to my instagram page the dog father holland the link is my bio is there just share just donate and yeah. just let the world know and then lastly before i let you go i'm so proud of you brother and what I love about your business, you empower other people to go into business for themselves. I have seen other groomers under your tutelage and you don't hold these people back. You, you let them fly. And when they get to the level that they're ready to go do their thing, you support them in that. So here at Revolt Black News, we want to honor you. We want to spotlight you. Brian Taylor of Harlem Doggy Day Spa, the Harlem Dog Father. Brother, we love you and we're proud of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for just giving me the opportunity on your platform. This means a lot to me. So I'm happy to continue doing what I'm going to continue doing. And I just can't wait to see her sometime this week so I can give her the Absolutely. spot treatment that she needs. 
She does. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much. Bye. So I want to thank all our guests today. This was so educational, um, so unique in perspective and profound. And what's, what it does is it sets us all up to continue our work. So we are going to remain vigilant, vigilant in this fight, vigilant in this moment, and vigilant in this revolution. We are going to keep our foot on the gas. We are not going to abandon our post, whether that is us showing up in the streets in form of protest and using the political power of visibility, or whether it is at the voting booth, whether it's showing up at the polls to vote for the legislation that we need to protect us and our community. We are going to make sure that we use our power, that we amplify our power to make the changes we seek for us because we are not hopeless and we are not powerless. We are indeed powerful in this moment. We will lean into it and ensure that we make this system work for us and not against us.